And if you are a Christian, you are called to a life of sanctification. You are called to a life of godliness, a life of holiness, in which every jot and every tittle of God's law needs to be the delight of your heart, for you are called to imitate good and not to imitate evil. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Take your Bibles this morning and be turning with me to 3 John for the last time, 3 John. It's toward the end of our Bibles. We want to close out our study of this short epistle, looking at uh, verses 11 through 15. I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll pick up in verse 11, and I'll read down through verse 15. I'll remind you this is the authoritative, inerrant, inspired Word of our living God. John writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. You may be seated. Let us ask the Lord for his help as we look at this text together this morning. Father, your word is open before us, and now we pray that your spirit that indwells within us would open our hearts and open our minds to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. History tells us that when the famous missionary explorer to Africa, David Livingston, had not been heard from for many months, people from all around the world became anxious to receive news as to whether he was still alive or not. Henry Stanley, a reporter for the New York Herald, set out to look for Livingston and finally found him in Central Africa. And after spending four months with uh, not only Livingston, but also a doctor because this reporter became sick, Stanley wrote these words, and I quote, I went to Africa as the biggest atheist in London, but there came a long time for reflection as I was sick. I saw this solitary old man there and asked myself, How on earth does he stay here? What is it that inspires him? Speaking about Livingston, the missionary. For months I found myself wondering at the old man carrying out all that was said in the Bible, how Jesus said, leave all things and follow me. Seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, and his earnestness, I was converted by him, although he had not even tried to do it. It was not Livingston's preaching which converted me, It was Livingston's living that converted me. 
You know, a Christian testimony and its intendant power to model Christ before others is downplayed and undervalued in our culture today. Third John is one of the three shortest books. John essentially writes it on one piece of papyrus. But its shortness and its brevity does not mean that it's insignificant. It is very important. In fact, it's unique because it's the only book in all of the scriptures whose outline revolves around three central characters. Gaius, who was pastor of the church John wrote to, Diotrephes, who was an elder causing trouble within the church, and then a man by the name of Demetrius. As you know, as we've studied, John was writing from Ephesus, providing a Holy Spirit-inspired personal letter to Pastor Gaius. And he encourages Gaius for loving God and walking in the truth. We saw that in verses 1 through 8. But then, as we saw last week, John moves to rebuke Diotrephes for his wickedness because Diotrephes was not loving others. He was not being obedient to the truth. And we saw that in verses 9 through 11. John is pressing home to Gaius that truth and love walk hand in hand. And so he points to the bad example of Diotrephes as a means to encourage Gaius to stay the course. But in the closing verses, John continues to, um, con- continues to encourage Reverend Gaius by pointing to the example of another character, a third name that is mentioned in this book, and that is a man by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius is a good example of someone who lived a good Christian life. He is an example of a man we know very little of, but he's an example of a man that Gaius would do well to imitate. He is a model of what it means to be a Christian, Demetrius is. And so in John's closing words penned to Gaius, he provides for us four points that show us how to imitate good and not to imitate evil. And I'm taking that title from verse 11. Four points showing us how to imitate good instead of imitating evil. Now it matters not who you are this morning. Because the Bible gives to us the commandments of God. The Bible gives to us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. And so whether you are not a Christian or you are a Christian, this message applies to you. The Bible commands us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And so if you are not a Christian, you must understand this morning that you can never be perfect on your own. You can never obey the law of God. You are a transgressor of God's law and your only hope is Jesus Christ who lived perfectly in obedience to God's law and then was sacrificed on the cross for your sake. And if you are a Christian, you are called to a life of sanctification. You are called to a life of godliness, a life of holiness, in which every jot and every tittle of God's law needs to be the delight of your heart, for you are called to imitate good and not to imitate evil. So what are these four points showing us what it means to imitate good instead of imitating evil? Well, first of all, I want you to notice with me at the beginning of verse 11 what I want to call the simple exhortation. John's exhortation to Gaius is very simple. Look at it. He says, Beloved, and remember that is a reference to Gaius, who John loves. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. 
Now, perhaps, concerned that Gaius may copy Diotrephes' poor leadership style, John provides this simple exhortation. And it is an exhortation to imitate. Mimamai is the Greek word for imitate. It's a present imperative, which means that, that what John is asking Gaius to do He's asking him to continually do the present tense. But it's also an imperative, which means it's a command. This this is not an apostolic suggestion. This is a moral exhortation. John is not merely a life coach giving good advice or sound advice. John is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he tells Gaius, do not imitate evil, but imitate good, it is not an apostolic suggestion, but a moral exhortation. As a matter of fact, if you skip with me quickly to the end of verse 15, John says to Gaius, greet the friends each by name. That means that this epistle probably would have been read publicly before Gaius's church. And they would have heard this moral exhortation to not imitate evil, but to imitate good. This obviously applies to us as well. It's important for us to have good models to imitate. As someone has written, the eyes a better pupil and much sharper than the ear. Fine counsel can confuse me, but examples always clear. The lectures you may deliver may be wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. And this simple exhortation has a positive result, as we are going to see, but it begins with a negative requirement. Notice it again. John says, do not imitate evil. Now, I think because he has just written about Diotrephes, who he said in verse 10 was talking wicked nonsense, when he speaks here about not imitating evil, I think John has Diotrephes on his mind. So the second half of the exhortation says what Gaius should do. Don't be like Diotrephes. Don't be like this arrogant, wicked man who always likes to put himself first. Instead, do not imitate evil. Notice your Bibles, but imitate good. Now, of course, Jesus Christ, Acts 10.38, tells us went about doing good. Jesus Christ is the, the very embodiment of what a good life looks like. To do good is to be like Jesus. Not self-serving pride, placing self first, but servant-minded humility, placing one last. Jesus said, those who want to be first will be last in the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus humbled himself. He came to this earth and he died on the cross. He is the example of humility and goodness So ultimately doing good, ultimately imitating good is to imitate Jesus. But doing good is to do right. And in this specific case, John is telling Gaius, listen, don't think that the brash, arrogant, sort of macho mentality is the stuff of a good leader. Don't follow the evil of Diotrephes. As one commentator says, and I quote, arrogant men may exude an aura of appeal. And that is true. But their behavior is evil. Everyone who likes to be first is buying into the mindset and lifestyle of the evil one. It is interesting to me that three times in this epistle, John gets extremely personal. Verse 1, 
the elder to the beloved Gaius. Verse 2, beloved, speaking to him direct, I pray that all may go well with you. Verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts. Direct, apostolic, commands and encouragements to Gaius. And here he encourages Gaius not to imitate evil, but to imitate good. You know, today the church is in desperate need of good models to imitate. In my library at home, I have pictures on my wall of men in the past and men of the present who have modeled before me what it means to run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need models. We need those we can imitate. Hebrews 13.7 exhorts us, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of life that they lived and imitate their faith. It was G. Campbell Morgan, the famous preacher, who once received a letter from a man who was converted under his ministry. And the man spoke of coming into G. Campbell Morgan's church as a boy. He came in neglected and hungry. And as he listened to the great preacher, he resolved that he too would like to become a preacher of the gospel. And not only did this boy who grew into a man become a preacher of the gospel, but his son also went into the ministry. And in this letter that he wrote to G. Campbell Morgan, he said, and I quote, From that night that I heard you preach, you became my great human ideal. I think I have read every book you have written. I placed your picture on the flyleaf of my Bible, and I have never stood up to preach without first turning to look upon it. It somehow helps me more than anything else. We need pictures of those men and women in our lives who model what it means to live a good life, not an evil life. So what is the lesson? The lesson is choose your models carefully. Remember, the lectures one delivers may be wise and true, but you'll get your true lesson by observing what they, that is good models, do. And the way you live matters because it provides Number two, moving to the second point, the spiritual evidence. We move from the simple exhortation to the spiritual evidence. Note how verse 11 ends. The result of choosing good models has consequences, good and bad. Verse 11, whoever does good, John says, is from God, but whoever does evil has not seen God. Now, I think it's best to see from God here in verse 11 and seen God as parallel. To be from God is to be of God, which means that we are born of God. 1 John 4, verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. To be from God is to be of God. It means to be born of God. And then to see God means that you have a vision of who God truly is. No one who abides in him, that is God, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen God or known God, 1 John 3, 6. So when John says, whoever does good is from God and whoever does evil has not seen God, what John is saying is that to experience the new birth is to be born of God the Holy Spirit. It is to see God with the eyes of faith, to have biblical vision that produces a biblical walk, and to have a biblical walk is to have a godly walk, and to do that is to live a good life. And such is evidence of a divine birth, regeneration, 
It is evidence of a supernatural work of God in the heart of a sinner where a sovereign God reaches down from heaven and washes a sinner clean, gives him a new heart, births him into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. The spiritual evidence, listen to this, of imitating good models is the result of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. And the threefold moral test that provides the evidence of whether or not we have passed is found in the good we do. What does it mean to do good? Well, first of all, it means that we walk in the truth. Skip back to me to uh, verse 3. John writes, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Doing good, therefore, means we walk in the truth. We love the truth. We embrace the truth. We live the truth. But doing good not only means that we walk in the truth, it also means that we walk in love. Verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful, faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. As we saw in previous weeks, John had sent traveling preachers to uh, Gaius's church, and Gaius had received these strangers into his own home. He had served them. He had shown hospitality to them. He had demonstrated love. And when they went back to John, as verse 6 says, they testified of Gaius's love. To do good means we walk in truth, but it also means that we walk in love. Third, it means we walk in goodness, and that's the point of verse 11. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. If we don't pass the threefold test of walking in truth and walking in love and walking in goodness, then the verdict is we aren't true Christians because the only other option, as verse 11 says, is to do evil, which means, as verse 11 says, we have not seen God. There is no neutrality when it comes to your spiritual condition. You are either in the kingdom of God or outside of the kingdom of God. You are either on your way to heaven or you are on your way to hell. You are either saved or you are not saved. You are either alive or still dead in your sins and trespasses. And perhaps John thought the verdict on Diotrephes was in. Perhaps he thought, as he wrote verse 11, that Diotrephes, this wicked leader in the church, wasn't even a true Christian. Because right after speaking about him in verse 10, John says, Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. But whoever does evil, Diotrephes, has not even seen God. The spiritual evidence is an obedient life, a good life, Live to the glory of God. Now, to be clear, there are three caveats that I want to provide to this spiritual evidence. And the first one is taken from Paul's words to the Romans and the Galatians, where Paul says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So here's the caveat. Someone born from God is someone who has seen God, but they are also someone who possesses eternal life, and therefore they have the power of God within them to live an obedient life through the power of the gospel. Someone who claims to have a Christian experience but persists in evil is dead, having never been born again and thus never really seeing God. 
But the glory does not go to man, does it? The glory goes to God. The second caveat, this spiritual vision of seeing God that John speaks about is just that, it's spiritual. When he says in verse 11, or implies that true Christians have seen God, unbelievers have not seen him, John's not speaking about some mystical vision, some charismatic emotionalism. You remember when Philip asked Jesus to show to the disciples the Father, he got the answer this way. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. As one commentator says, if anyone wants to see God, to know what he is like, the evidence is in Jesus, and he is the only means of contact. So we see God in Christ, the living word revealed, in the pages of the written word. Those who do evil have not yet seen who God is or recognize the truth of Scripture, but when our spiritual eyes are opened, we are brought into a saving relationship with God through Jesus and the word of God. End quote. And the third caveat, you might say, how does this square with 1 John 4, 12, which says no one has ever seen God? Well, on the one hand, it is indeed true that God is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, 1 Timothy 6 But on the other hand, with eyes of faith, believers can behold God and His glory. And that's exactly what we're doing this morning in worship. Every part of worship is centered around the Word of God and centered around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you and I can behold and glory in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we see Christ and we all with unveiled face, Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As the Spirit of God empowers our worship, Christ is before us and He speaks to us. And the Spirit takes His Word and conforms us to the image of Christ. Moral conformity to God's law is not in conflict with conformity to the image of Christ. The most good man, let me use improper English, the goodest man to ever walk this earth was the God-man empowered by the Holy Spirit who lived a perfect life imparted to believers. Back in 1 John chapter 3, John speaks about evidence. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has seen or he has been born of God. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but there will be evidence of a certain trajectory and pattern in your life of obedience. This is John's point in almost every part of his first epistle. 1 John 2 verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Because that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus 
Christ. True Christians have fellowship with Jesus. They are fed by Jesus. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Jesus does not tell us to go and merely teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you, but to teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. To make this simple point, one has not really learned a commandment until they have obeyed it. You have not understood the word of God until in your life you are actually obeying it, putting it into practice. And how many churches today are filled with Christians who are Christian in name only? There's no evidence that they are truly born again. But what's worse, how many true Christians know with their mind far more than they practice? You know, there is one good thing about being a part of a secular society. One redeeming value. And that is, it's very clear who's in and who's out. The line has been drawn in the sand. It seems that almost every day in my life, I go on social media or I find out from some friend somewhere who has become apostate. They have left the church. They have walked away. Sometimes in bitterness, sometimes because of disillusionment, sometimes for a love of the world. That's the society we live in. And it's pretty clear in our society who the true Christians are. But you are writing the gospel a chapter each day. By the deeds that you do, by the words that you say, men read what you write, whether faithless or true, say, what is the gospel according to you? Are you showing evidence that Jesus has changed your life? Our greatest desire at this church is that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. What a travesty it would be as a young person, as a child here this morning, to grow up in a church that preaches the gospel, to have parents that love the gospel and model it before you and teach the gospel to you at home for you to grow up and walk away from the church. Well, this then moves John, because he's speaking about deep things. It moves John to stop speaking in generalities and to go back to being personal and practical. He's actually spoken quite poignantly about Diotrephes negatively, but now in verse 12, he moves to speak about another man, Demetrius, and he speaks about him positively. So we move from number one, the simple exhortation, number two, the spiritual evidence, to number three, the saintly example. Notice it with me in verse 12. John says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know what our te- that our testimony is true. In other words, John is using Demetrius as an example for Gaius to follow. Just as writing about Diotrephes led John to write about doing evil in verse 11, the mention of doing good in verse 11 now reminds John of a man named Demetrius. Now, who was Demetrius? Well, we don't fully know for sure. Interestingly, there was a Demetrius mentioned in Acts 19.23. He was a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis. He had caused an uproar against the Apostle Paul among the pagan citizens, forcing Paul to leave that two-year ministry stint. And as you know, that same city, Ephesus, is where John is writing from. So if this is the same Demetrius, what a trophy of grace, a model to follow since God had turned his life around. Many of you know that the gentleman 
whose name was Paul, Paul Kruger, who built this pulpit, was a man who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. He's now with the Lord. He passed away recently, but he grew up a Roman Catholic. And Paul told me that there were two primary pictures hanging in his living room. One was of the Pope, and the other was of John F. Kennedy, the first Catholic president. John grew up in the cultic environment of Roman Catholicism, but when the Lord changed his heart and saved him, Paul went from a man who made wood pieces of altars and pagan worshiping structures for the Roman Catholic Church to a cabinet maker. And the Lord opened a door for him to build this pulpit as a monument reflecting God's grace in his life. Perhaps Demetrius was the former silversmith, but we know that he likely was the one carrying this letter. He was trustworthy, carrying the letter that John was writing to Gaius. And we can't know for certain, but if it's the same Demetrius of Acts 19, this idol maker became a letter carrier for the true God. Of course, nothing indicates either way. It was a common name, Demetrius, and the nickname for Demetrius is Demas. But certainly the Demetrius of verse 12 is not the Demas who out of love for the present world deserted the Apostle Paul. No, this Demetrius in verse 12 is a man of high character and godly credentials. And so John elevates him as a model worthy of emulating. Perhaps even a leader for Gaius to look up to, a fellow pastor. We know that church history tells us that John the Apostle himself appointed Demetrius to be the bishop of Philadelphia, which was one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And if Gaius is pastoring Pergamum, Demetrius later pastored Philadelphia. But perhaps Demetrius too had an ally in Gaius. Because perhaps too... Demetrius had been on the receiving end of Diotrephes' venomous slander. And if so, once he arrived in Pergamum to deliver the letter, Gaius and Demetrius could be commiserating brothers, bosom buddies in the fraternity of pastors, sharing their war stories together and learning from each other. Certainly, given the damage that Diotrephes had caused, these pastors needed to be encouraged. Gaius' church needed, we could say, spiritual reinforcements, special ops of God's army. And so as he came with this letter, he was telling Gaius that help is on the way. John is coming soon. This was a man of high character who lived a good life. But in any event, verse 12 is clear that Demetrius brought with him impeccable character, not just a letter, his testimony had a threefold confirmation. Notice, first of all, it was inclusive. The beginning of verse 12, John says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. It seemed that all who knew Demetrius, there was no person or group excluded, saw him as having a good testimony. We could say a sterling testimony. We could say he had a, a, a long track record of faithful Christian living. And I want you to hone in on that phrase, has received a good testimony, because it translates the Greek martureo, where we get our English word martyr. It simply means to, to witness. And the form of this verb, martureo, is a perfect passive, which means that his Christian testimony, that of Demetrius, or his witnessed in the past, remained valid in the present. 
It was a testimony that stood the test of time. In other words, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, no matter the relationship, no matter the storm, no matter the trial, Demetrius was a man who had sterling character. And John wants guys to understand it's character that is the stuff of good leaders, not pomp and arrogance, such as that demonstrated by Diotrephes. Character is the stuff of good leaders. It was said of Robert E. Lee that he was a foe without hate, a friend without treachery, a soldier without cruelty, a public officer without vices, a neighbor without reproach, a Christian without hypocrisy, a man without guile. And as one literary work put it, one ship sails east, one ship sails west, regardless of how the winds blow, but it is the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way we go. Demetrius was made of the stuff of Christian character, and everyone knew it. He had honesty, integrity, industry, purity, so that even when the winds came, he stayed the course. And of course, it prompts us to ask ourselves, what are we made of? What do people say about us? What do people in the community say about you? What do your co-workers say about you? What does your family say about you, your neighbors? Well, Demetrius had sterling character, confirmed in this inclusive element that everyone recognized it. But secondly, there was also an objective element. The word of God itself spoke of his witness. Notice the middle of verse 12, John continues, and from the truth itself. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and a testimony from the truth itself. Although he had the testimony of other men about his own Christian testimony, he really didn't need it because he had the testimony of God. The truth of the scriptures testified to Demetrius' goodness. It wasn't just the, by word of mouth that people knew he walked according to truth. It was the very word of truth, John says. Can I quote Psalm 19.7? The testimony of the Lord is sure. Demetrius lived his life according to the word of truth, so that when he was measured by that yardstick, the word of God, it was the truth itself that confirmed his quality. He was not found wanting. And how did the truth testify? Well, he lived the truth he said he believed. He was a doer of the word, not just a sayer of the word. James chapter 2. The truth that he confessed and the life that he lived was all one. No double life here. He didn't undo the theology or orthodoxy he believed by his behavior or orthopraxy. It all matched up. On the other hand, hypocrites talk a good game, but it's smoke and mirrors. Jesus said they honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But no, this, this was not Demetrius. He had the very testimony of Scripture. Looking at Demetrius' life was like looking at the Bible. He was a walking Bible. He was walking and talking truth. He had what I like to call fingertip theology that works because his adherence to a confession produced adhesive to the commandments of God. And this threefold confirmation of Demetrius' testimony was not only inclusive, And not only objective, but it also had an exclusive element. Notice the end of verse 12. 
John adds, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. He met the approval of an apostle of Jesus Christ? How many of you can say that? What he says here, our testimony, it may or may not refer to other apostles. We know that John was the last living apostle. He's probably writing this no later than AD 85. Maybe there were still apostles around, maybe not. So our testimony likely then refers to other churchmen, other pastors, other elders, perhaps deacons, leaders in the church. He says, you know that our testimony is true. You know you can trust it. I mean, after all, are we going to accuse John, who wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of lying? John himself confirmed exclusively with an apostolic stamp that Demetrius had good character. So as Christians, in order to imitate good, not evil, we need to understand the exhortation is simple. We saw it in verse 11, but the difficulty of executing it is hard. There will be bumps, there will be obstacles, there will be failures, there will be trials. But secondly, there is enough available, sufficient spiritual evidence, if we look, both for ourselves and for others, that help us determine the validity of, of our Christian profession. If you're wondering whether you are a Christian this morning and you're orthodox in your beliefs, then you need to look at your behavior. How does your behavior match up? Does the Lordship of Christ mark your life? Jesus said you will know them by their what? Their fruit. And a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree, bad fruit. And third, it's necessary to have real life Human models, imperfect though they may be, as examples to follow. Remember, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And every church is full of Demetriuses. So find them and follow them and imitate them and learn from both the successes and failures of good men, not evil men, because evil people and imposters will grow on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You don't want to die deceived. But this then begs the question, how do we do this, and where do we find these models? So we move from, number one, the simple exhortation, 11a, and the spiritual evidence, 11b, and the saintly example, verse 12, number four, to the sincere engagement. Now John's closing to this epistle is chocked full, perhaps surprisingly so, with a practical tip. And what is the practical tip? Well, here it is. Seek Christian relationships with sincere engagement in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there you will find Christian models, listen to this, to imitate and emulate and evaluate in order to elevate your Christian experience. And such engagement in the church involves individual engagement, first of all, individual engagement. Engagement. Notice verse 13. John says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. Very similar conclusion as we saw to 2 John some weeks back. I believe that John probably wrote 2 John and 3 John essentially back to back. But here he tells Gaius, I had much to write. In other words, there were things that John wanted to write, but notice he says, I had much to write to you. Have we forgotten that this was a personal letter written by one individual to another? It really was not a letter written to the churches, although it was circulated among the churches. This is a personal letter. 
And there is therefore much to say about one-on-one ministry or one-on-one discipleship. Some are more gifted at it than others, but individual-focused engagement of one Christian to another, as iron sharpens iron, is key to imitating good instead of evil. And there have been many men in my own life, including my father, who have reached into my life in a very particular and special way. They have given of their time, their resources, individual attention to me to help me live a godly life. One of those men is a man named Jay. And Jay sometimes would invite me to his house for dinner. Jay sometimes would rebuke me for something stupid that I did or something stupid that I was going to do. But it was also Jay who prayed with me in the church library before one of my first sermons. It was also Jay who literally would throw me into his pool as his wife would beg him not to do it because she thought he was going to kill me as he belly laughed. I remember the time he threw me into the ministerial pool. My job was youth pastor, and my first project was to paint the youth room with a bunch of youth. And I'll never forget paint being everywhere. It was a mess And I'm on a ladder trying to figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to control the situation. And Jay handed me a paintbrush and he said, Welcome to the ministry. Jay Buckhalter, a man worth emulating. There have been many others, and no doubt Gaius never forgot John for taking him under his wing, imitating godliness before him life on life. You see, imitating good requires sincere engagement of the individual kind. So find someone to imitate and stick close to them. And by the way, let someone find you and give yourself to them. But sincere engagement to imitate good is not only individual, it's also intimate. Intimate engagement. Notice verse 14. John says, I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Face-to-face communication is important, especially in our progressive, impersonal, cyberspace, flat-screen age. Verse 13, I would rather not write with pen and ink, he says, even though he had much to write, as he pointed out. But here in verse uh, 13, but face-to-face, that is mouth-to-ear, that's hard to replace. Some things, especially the things that John had to address when he came would be better said face to face. And I can't express enough the importance of the intimacy of a church community who have covenanted together. It's of supreme value to your soul. The intimate community of a church family, it's like a breeding ground for copycats who imitate Someone they know instead of someone far off like a world leader, a sports hero, or a figure in church history. As one commentator says, we are not disembodied beings. Meaningful friendship and fellowship require personal contact because smiles and sighs convey a wealth of meaning that the written word cannot express. Why else do you think the word became flesh and dwelt among us? The only way we were able to behold the glory of Christ is because he became like us. He sympathizes with us. 
And that is what draws us to him. That is what helps us know him. And talk about face-to-face intimacy. Jesus had face-to-face ministry. He preached to others present before him. He touched others to heal them and raise them from the dead. He picked children into his arms. He wasn't aloof. He was intimately involved in the lives of those that he knew. Another man some of you I've introduced to. His name is Bob Carver. He was a professor of mine in college. And I see him once a year at Ligonier National Conference. And Bob Carver always seeks me out and always asks how the ministry is going and how life is going. A man of sterling character. You'll never see him platformed at Ligonier. You'll never see his name in lights. As far as I know, he's never written a book, but he is a godly pastor, friend, and someone worth emulating. And so it was exciting to see this last Ligonier conference that Burke Parsons, who also trained under Bob Carver, actually pointed Bob out and had Bob stand before all the people. But you know what was so special about that was the fact that Bob didn't want to stand because Bob is a humble man. A man of integrity and industry and purity. A man worth emulating. Who in your life is worth emulating? Sincere engagement leads to imitating what is good, not evil. And such engagement is individual. Such engagement is intimate. And third, such engagement is inclusive. Verse 15, it begins, peace be to you. It's a common Jewish greeting, but you remember it took on new meaning when Jesus rose from the dead. Three times in John 19, as Jesus appears to the disciples, he says, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. So to close with the parting words of peace reminded Gaius that all is well because of the peace through Christ within the gospel. Such peace that John offers to Gaius has outward and inward application. Of course, it's the peace of the gospel, but such peace was also comforting to his particular circumstances because pastoring this church with the problems that Diotrephes had caused, like James 3, a wildfire, the tongue of Diotrephes had had set the church aflame, and the pressure he was under could now be replaced with a peace that passes all understanding if Gaius would simply focus on the gospel. And the same is true with you and I. It matters not what sort of trial we are enduring. It is the peace of the gospel inwardly that comforts us. But there's also not only this outwardly applied peace, this inward peace of a good conscience. You know, the whole import of this letter is essentially this in a nutshell. Gaius, you're doing good, you're living good, you're doing right, keep doing it. Don't be distracted. Live with a clean conscience. You are doing good. Stay the course. Don't leave your post. But you see, Gaius needed more than John's encouragement and Demetrius' example. He needed to know that he had others who would help him imitate good if called upon. So John tells us, The friends greet you. In other words, this is inclusive engagement. It's not just one person. It's not just Demetrius. John says the friends greet you. That is, the members of John's church. And 
in the scriptures, Christian fellowship is usually described in terms of brotherhood, but friendship is used here, and it's really synonymous, a synonymous way to express Christian engagement. You remember that Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so John says, the friends, the friends greet you. We need more than one person to imitate. We need multiple people to imitate. And so John concludes by saying, greet the friends at your church, Gaius, every one of them. Everyone mattered to John. And since the good shepherd knew his sheep by name, John 10, 3, the application is that all under shepherds and sheep should consider all sheep worthy of knowing and potentially imitating. How do we do that? Well, we throw away the bad qualities, we keep the good qualities, and our goodness is multiplied because those who belong to the shepherd belong to one another, one flock. This inclusive engagement, multiple models, find good models and imitate them, and also be a friend and imitate goodness within the fellowship of friendship, the church. That's the point of this letter. Because the Christian life is really a community project. We are called to live in friendly fellowship with one another, growing together and learning together what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now with that being said, there is a warning that I want to provide. We have spoken about John's affinity for Gaius, his affinity for Demetrius, and obviously what would become an affinity between Demetrius and Gaius. However, it would be wrong for us to assume that we cannot have special affinity for some Christians over others. This sort of idea of inclusive friendship does not mean you're going to be everyone's best friend. In fact, this was true in even Jesus' life. How does the Apostle John refer to himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, does that mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples? Of course not. But there was a special affinity that Jesus had to John as a man, to another man. So it's not wrong to have a unique and special affinity with one person over another. But we are to look to all those in the church as our friends and to be a friend. So what's the final takeaway? Well, maybe this. The church in the 21st century is just like the church in the 1st century. It's not without its problems. Here you have three men that are spoken about. Gaius, Diotrephes, Demetrius. Two good, one bad. Two out of three is not bad. But Satan is not at the bar on Saturday night. He's at the church on Sunday morning. There are those within the church who prove to be wicked. And even still, Christ is building the church one brick at a time. Sometimes bad bricks exist, but the great architect sovereignly uses those bricks, can I call them blockheads, to sanctify the saints. Our study of these three different yet representative church members around which this whole outline of 3 John 
revolves, remind us that the essence of discipleship is not really human models we follow. That's not the essence of it. It's really more about the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all true Christians are being conformed and by whom all true Christians are being transformed. Keep Keep your eyes on Christ. Because both our character and the cultivation thereof, as well as our lives, are being molded to the image of King Jesus. And King Jesus must reign until all enemies are placed under his feet. So let us find good models while keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, longing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would help us not just live the good life, but live a good life that honors him in a way that influences and impacts those around us within the fellowship and the friendship of the church. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for the book of 3 John because it's such practical truth for us. And uh, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to live a good life in the sense that we glorify you by the way we live. We don't want to bring anything into our lives that would tarnish our testimony. But we need good models. We need those that we can imitate. We need flesh and blood set before us. So Lord, help us to find Good models, even as we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit, we keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greatest model of all, and we trust that this work of sanctification will become a reality in our lives. So that we don't just live a good life selfishly, but that our good life is so grounded in truth that it can't help but overflow and be a blessing to others. We thank you for what your word will accomplish in our lives. And we thank you for this church where there are many, many models that we can imitate. We give you the glory and we pray this in Jesus' name. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.